0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is a special episode, The Formation of the German Empire, January 18th, 1871. So, before we get into it, I just want to apologize, I know this episode is late. I originally had planned for 20 minutes, just 20 minutes. Talking about the day. As you can tell by the length of this episode, it went a little bit longer than 20 minutes. Uh, In fact, the original script for this was about three times as long as a normal script. So I had to do some cutting. Which, you know, burned me to my core. But I had to do it. I just have this issue of, well, going down the rabbit's hole. But it's out now, it's amazing the amount of stuff that we're going to have to be talking about today just to deal with a single day in history, how much information is packed into that day. Especially on a day that for most people is nothing, even for Germans themselves. It's just a regular day. So, let's jump back to this random day in history. The year is 1871. January 18th. We are in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, France, right outside the city of Paris. Standing in front of us is a tall, bald man with a large set of whiskers. He's overlooking a crowd of soldiers, princes, fellow kings, and diplomats, all of whom are taking in the moment. Now, our man is... Not in the best of shapes. I mean, to be fair, he's 74 years old, so his body's a little bit on the pudgy side. And despite the fact that he's in a mill of a beautiful hall surrounded by friends and family, he is in a foul mood. One of the worst moods he's ever been in, and he is depressed. The reason why? Well, it would be another bald man in the room. This man is standing in the crowd right now, staring back at him. This other bald man has the face of a grumpy bulldog. And he's delighted. He is happy. Things have gone his way, just like he always hoped it would. And no one, especially at a young age, would have expected him to have reached this far. A minor member of the Junker nobility... But this minor member of the Junkers is the reason why our first gentleman is in such a foul mood. A man who was supposed to be the thorn in the sides of the liberals to bring Prussia to its height of glory is now destroying everything, everything our main man believes is pure and right in this world. And it is on this day, thanks to these two men, that the German Empire is formed. Okay, so what's going on here? We have a grumpy man, whiskered man. This is going to be our new emperor. We have a formation of the German Empire in Versailles, France. Not, you know, Berlin or even Munich or anything like that. No, it's in France of all places. And we have what seems to be a major falling out between the Emperor and the Emperor Maker, who is Otto von Bismarck. And this should be the happiest of their days, because this is the culmination of a lot of people's dreams in Germany. The formation of a German nation. So why is this the case? Why... Are they in France? Why are these two butting heads? Why is the emperor upset that he's gotten all this power? Well, as I've mentioned, it's a long story to get to this day. And it's something that will unfold over multiple episodes in the main timeline of the podcast when we get there. But I can't just throw you guys into the day without any background at all. So we're going to spend today's talking about the overall issue of you know where German nationalism came from, how they got to this place, and then why these two had such a major falling out on this day of celebration. So before we get to these two butting heads, let's step back and let's talk about the bigger picture. Let's talk about why Germany is forming. What's making everyone go, you know what, let's make a united German nation. That's a cool idea, right? Well, the idea of Germany is not that old at this point. Now you're probably going, what are you talking about? We've been talking about Germania, the Germans, all that. And Yeah, but remember, the Germans, especially from the Romans' point of view, they weren't a united people. They're just tribes that the Romans like, yeah, they're barbarians. They're Germans. They're, you know, they're not us. There's not been a cultural and linguistic tie to make everyone these Germans until much later. In many ways, Germany owes its beginnings and its creation thanks to the French. And I'm not talking about just because we're outside of Paris at the moment in January 1871, but because of Napoleon I and the French Empire, and the French Revolution. Before the 1800s, the Germans were a collection of states that shared some language and some cultural ties, but in many ways saw each other as foreigners as much as a man from the British, or someone from the United States. Their relationship, if any, with those within the German states, would be very little in comparison of family and friendship. Merchants and soldiers would have the most interaction, but that was typically on a um, negative interaction. The merchants competing against one another and the soldiers, you know, shooting one another. So there is no great bond before the 1800s that are uniting all these Germans together. Now, this all changes with the Napoleonic Wars, especially after the Treaty of Tilsit. Germany had always been a battleground in Europe. But that's typically because of what was happening in Germany. German members of the Holy Roman Empire were constantly fighting one another, either on the political or real battlefield. And many a times, it would bring in outside forces, such as the Swedes, the Russians, the French, the British, and the Spanish. All these would be brought in at one point or the other to fight on the fields of Germany for a German state. This became even more apparent as we have rivals beginning to rise up to challenge the biggest power involved in Germany, which is Austria. These rivals would rise up throughout all of Germany, trying to break the monopoly that Austria had over the Holy Roman Empire. And in many ways, they would succeed with the Thirty Years' War. But it's not until a power by the name of Prussia rising in the north that we truly get a German counter to the German-Austrians. We have the French. They are a good counter to the Austrians, but they're French. They're not Germans themselves. And so, of the major powers, we have two of them, Austria and Prussia, that will be competing a lot for control of Germany, with France and Russia stepping in every once in a while. Now, Prussia came to power, of course, thanks to Frederick the Great, and it's thanks to him and his predecessors that Prussia was able to get to this state. I mean, seriously, Prussia was extremely lucky to have a series of good leaders, all the way up to Frederick the Great. To get them to a position to where they could become technically the weakest, but still a great power in Europe. However, after Frederick the Great, Prussia is plateauing among the Hohenzollerns. They are never going to have anyone as good or as strong as their previous leaders that is coming from this family. And so they're going to have to be relying on excellent ministers who can control the Hohenzollerns and dictate the course of Prussian policy in order for Prussia to maintain its greatness if it is going to. Now, the French Revolution, Napoleon, they enter during a major low point in Prussian history. And this is proven when Napoleon comes to power and absolutely wrecks them and the Austrians. The Holy Roman Empire is dead, thanks to Napoleon. It's not the Prussians who break the Holy Roman Empire, as you would expect, trying to destroy Austria's control in Germany, but it's the French who do it. Which Prussia, of course, can't allow, bringing them into the war, which leads to them being trounced in two battles that causes them to lose control of their entire nation and be put at the mercy of the French and the Russians at the Treaty of Tilsit. Now, if Napoleon had his way, Prussia was going to be wiped off the map. He didn't care for Prussia. But luckily, Russia was able to intervene. And then for the next six years, Prussia and the other German states would have to serve and fight for their French overlords, who had no problem treating and reminding the Germans that they were their underlings. They were going to feed and they were going to fight for the French war machine. And they had no say in the matter. Now, eventually, Napoleon made the mistake of many dictators and invaded Russia, which ended in catastrophe for him and showed that the French Empire was susceptible to losing. And that made many believe that this was their chance. This was the moment for revenge. To pay the French back for those six years of being under their thumb the Prussian army made peace on the retreat from Moscow. They were not going to follow the French out. They said, you know what? We're going to stick around. We're going to join the Russians. Even though their king was still saying we're going to back the French. A little awkward there. But they were done serving the French. They were not going to fight Napoleon's wars anymore. Now, it's rather interesting, but the war that's about to begin, that's going to be aimed at freeing Germany and pushing the French back across their quote-unquote natural borders, was not led by the Prussians, was not led by the Austrians, but by soldiers and civilians who were tired of the French domination. You would think that Austria and Prussia, both of whom are supposed to be the great powers of the Germans, would have stepped in, but neither do. Because neither were 100% sure if the war was going to go their way. They were still wary of Napoleon. Napoleon was someone to be scared of. And they figured if they joined too soon and Napoleon trounced them, well, then they would lose everything. However, eventually Prussia broke and realized that, you know, it was better to risk the war with the French than just let Russia take the French on and lose everything. And eventually Austria would join after trying to negotiate. But because Prussia joins first of the two German great powers, it actually puts it in a special position among the hearts and the minds of the German people. Because, well, it's the first. It was the one who stood up against Napoleon when it wasn't entirely 100% sure that things could be won. And the Prussians become the center ...for the opposition against French domination. Not the Austrians, not the Russians, but the Prussians. As such, a war of liberation, of allowing the people to live their own life... ...rather than being at the mercy of those who didn't even speak their language... ...let alone care for them, began. This led to thousands of Germans to flock to the banners of the Prussians... ...who they saw as the only ones willing to put up a fight... Now, you're probably going, wait, that's not true at all. I mean, come on, the Prussians barely joined the war. And you're right. But it's not like the Prussians were going to admit that. The Prussian ministry was fostering this idea that Prussia was leading the charge for this war of liberation. And they wanted to promote this sense of unity with the Germans, pulling on their tied language and memories of the olden days before French occupation. And, of course, a shared hatred of that said French occupation. And it worked. It eventually turned all of Germany against France. It evicted them and saw a force of unity start to be promoted among the people. Now, after the French eviction and the defeat of the little Corsican, the Germans returned to a sense of the olden days. Or at least the governments tried to return to this sense of the olden days. Austria tried to rebuild the Holy Roman Empire. And the Prussians tried to resert more control, but to both, they acted as though the clock was going to be reset back to the 1700s. Austria was going to have its German confederation that was going to have them leading everything in the foreign world. Prussia was going to try to usurp Austria's power and try to keep Its own independence while trying to get as much of the German states to back it up. But while they were still in this mentality of we're back in the 1700s, everything's fine, the people were not at all okay with this. The German Confederation, this new government that was supposed to run the German states, was not satisfying. Most of the people realized that the German Confederation was no better than the Holy Roman Empire. That it couldn't protect them against anything. They also, despite their hatred of the French, had grown accustomed to the laws and the regulations under the Napoleonic Code. Which really couldn't be a part of turning the clock back to the 1700s. So, a lot of them are pushing for reforms. Sure, fine, have your little German confederation, but give us more rights. Give us a little bit more say in the matter. But the biggest thing that is on everyone's mind is that this could happen again. They believed that another Napoleon could rise in France. In fact, Napoleon did rise again in France. So if that happened again and he was able to stay in power, what's to stop him from moving across the Rhine again and destroying everything, putting everything back under French occupation? These two ideas, the ideas of better representation, you know, better laws and so forth, more enlightened ideas, tied in with this fear of French aggressiveness, was promoted and supported quite a bit by intellectuals and gems. We see this happening among the intellectuals with the works of such as the Grimm's brothers, who provided a shared cultural background, a shared collection of stories that tied the German people together, and of course explored the language of the Germans, to find its roots, to find its connections in history. We see this with the gems who are teaching the young about the idea of Germany and why their brand of national identity was the way to go. Why instead of having all these multiple states that made up Germany, it should be one state, it should be one nation of Germans working together, protecting themselves. These gems gave the dissatisfied youth something to fight for and a dream to move towards. Meanwhile, the movement of the liberals and the intellectuals helped promote the changes in education that would awaken the spirit of nationalism in others. Meanwhile, the aristocracy, these Junkers, well, they're not really feeding into this idea of nationalism. And they continue to play their games... Believing that their world would never shatter. That they could continue living life pre-French Revolution. That they could continue being the political and social heads of their states. Now, if anyone stepped over the line, you know, they talk too much, they threaten someone's life, they actually tried to take someone's life, well, yeah, you crush them, you shut those down. But the gems, the intellectuals they never really pushed too far. And so the majority of them are allowed to survive because they're seen as a distraction, as a safety valve to let off some steam, not realizing in many ways it was helping to build up steam. For the Junkers, these ideas, these writings, these demands for nationalism was nothing more than a fantasy that few of the commoners wanted. But the majority were happy with the way things were. And nothing needed to change. And for a while, they seemed to be right. That is until 1848 came around. In the 30 years, from the fall of Napoleon to 1848, we don't see too much happening. Yes, there's some assassinations, there's some movements and protests, but nothing really, really terrible in the aristocracy's eyes happens until 1848. But 1848 changes everything. All of Europe, basically, is just blown up with revolutions. And in Germany, especially, there are a lot of revolutionary movements going on. Many of the German states lose their typical governments to these revolutions, who are demanding changes, constitutions, democracy, and a united nation. Many, many of these revolutionaries are demanding one flag for all Germans. A democratic state for all Germans. That's a pretty cool idea. Most people nowadays are being like, yeah, go for it. That's awesome. But at the time, this dream, this plan, it's plagued by many problems. First, it only has about a year to get all this stuff sorted out. Because while 1848 was an explosion for Europe, upset everything just like an explosion, it was there and gone. It was out in a flash. So, they got one year to do this. There was also some complicating issues with uniting all the Germans, which we've actually talked about in our very first episode, which is what what do we consider to be Germany and Germans? Not to them, if you spoke the language, if you shared some of the cultural ideas, and you're German. And that's a beautiful sentiment, you know, uniting all the Germans together. But it's not exactly easy to do. Yes, the majority of the Germans actually already live in the German Confederation and are under the control of these revolutionaries because most of the German states have folded and have given in to the German National Assembly that has formed in Frankfurt. But not all of them. Because there are many living under the Danish, the French, and the Austrians who do not have any representation in Frankfurt. Now, for the French and the Danish, these are small minorities. But, I mean, the Austrians, I mean, the Austrians are German. But they're so busy fighting their own civil war and trying to keep the Hungarians under control that they don't care about the Frankfurt Convention. And they don't want to support This idea of the united nation. The system was working great for them in the past. Why would they give that up for whatever this is? Especially considering they'd have to probably share power with the other major player, Prussia. There is also the issue that the German nation that's forming wasn't made up of just Germans. There is a lot of minorities within these borders, including Poles, Czechs, some French along with many others. And a lot of those were not exactly thrilled about a nation for the Germans that they would be, you know, a part of. And for many of them, they were busy fighting their own revolutions in 48 to see their own dreams of a united nation come true and weren't going to help out their overlords in their revolution. The final issue that these 48 revolutionaries couldn't overcome was that they lacked the prestige and the political power to assert themselves. Truly, in order to deal with the problems of the minorities within their own borders, and to complete their goal of reuniting all the other Germans together under one flag, they needed someone with the authority and the power to make it happen. And that was something that a bunch of liberals and radicals just couldn't get in 1848. No one gave him that amount of trust and power, or respect in that matter. As such, they reached out to the Prussians, who honestly were still plagued with a not-great king and an unsure and conservative court. But the Frankfurt Convention sent one Edard Simpson go talk to the Prussian king and offer him the crown of the Germans. Unfortunately for the Frankfurt Convention, this was not going to go their way. The Prussians believed that this crown was all wrong. That what they were being handed was a joke. And in many ways, they weren't too far off. The Frankfurt Parliament, that convention, it was, it was on its last legs. And it truly needed Prussia more than Prussia needed it. But that wasn't the big issue. The big issue was that the crown wasn't being offered the right way. The crown needed to be either taken by force or to be given by the crowned heads of Germany, not by the vulgar common people. And indeed, they claimed that the crown was a crown from the gutters. So they refused, sent Samson back, and the hopes that Germany would unite under a liberal movement collapsed. Now, this has actually been a center of contention among historians on if Frankfurt could truly have pulled it off. But in many ways, I don't see it working out. At least not in the 1800s. If Germany was to unite, a different path was going to have to be taken. And it would be found within the head of a conservative bulwark a political mastermind by the name of Otto von Bismarck. Till then, though, the gyms are going to be closed, the ideas and the fever of nationalism are going to be, well, stepped on a little bit, they're going to be kept in check, and the conservatives are going to come back in power. And their main goal is to make sure nothing like 1848 ever happens again. But despite that, they couldn't really put the genie back in the bottle. Yes, they forced a lot of people to flee Germany. Yes, they controlled the reins of power, but the common people haven't forgotten. And that national fever, that excitement for a united country is still there. And it still spreads. The German Confederation is back. Some of these nations have to give concessions. But this, this is only temporary to many people. Eventually, a united Germany is going to form. The conservatives can't hold them off forever. And it will come through a conservative member of the Junker class, Otto von Bismarck, our sad, bulldog-faced, bald man. Now, he comes to power in 1862 because King Wilhelm I, our bald-faced, heavily-whiskered man, decided that putting the strong conservative Bismarck in power would rub it in the faces of the liberal Landtag, Prussia's concession to demands for more liberalism, and teach them about stopping his budget for the military. Now, Bismarck wasn't there just, you know, to be a conservative bulwark. He wanted a powerful Prussia. Both he and King Wilhelm wanted that. They both agreed that Prussia needed its place in the sun. But Bismarck believed that for a powerful Prussia to happen, it needed to happen through nationalism. He saw it as a great vehicle to make Prussia the only power in Germany, and then not just the lowest great power, but rivaling whoever was going to be on top, whether that be the French or the British at the time. Nationalism, which had been squashed, had never been truly defeated. And it would provide Bismarck with an excuse to expand Prussia's power across Central Europe. The problem with nationalism as a vehicle was that it was extremely fractured and in many ways was not favoring Bismarck's idea for nationalism at all. Most people didn't want a Prussian-dominated Germany. That just wasn't on the plate. That was considered the Little Germany Plan because it required that Austria be evicted because you couldn't have two heads ruling one body. The Big Germany Plan was what was currently happening and was promoted by Austria and its conservative allies. Not really popular among the commoners. The middle path, the final path, saw a coalition of nations of Germans working together with equal representation of each German state, much more akin to the Frankfurt Convention. And this was favored among the smaller German states and the majority of the people. However, in the end, it didn't really matter to most people. They just wanted to have a united Germany. They wanted that dream to be accomplished one way or the other. And Bismarck would use that in order to promote the smaller Germany and to get people to go away from the middle path, to go away from the Austrian Germany. He used the problems of the Frankfurt Convention to show that the small German path was just the best way. The first problem he focused on was the idea of a German nation enforcing itself on the European stage. This is what led to war with Denmark in order to assert control over Schleswig and Holstein both of which the Germans considered part of their nation to be fair not so much Holstein but you know couldn't separate the two This was then followed by war with Austria and the southern states to make sure that everyone knew which German nation would form if any This was not going to be led by the Austrians or the southern Germans this was going to be led by the Prussians Both of these wars were really quick victories. While they were quick and decisive, they weren't enough to unite the nation. Even with the eviction of the Austrians, it was not like Prussia could easily annex all the other states. After all, for many of the southern Germans, that would be the equivalent of the French invasion of Germany at the turn of the century. What originally united the German people? That's something that Bismarck couldn't do. He couldn't use that to bind them under Prussian rule. That would destroy his plans. Instead, he needed another shared experience, something that he could use to shape the culture and the people and bind them all together. And this is what gets us to the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles in 1871. We are five years after the crushing defeat of the Austrians. The North is united under the North German Confederation, while the Southern states are still free, with Bavaria considered their leader, and they are currently under the leadership of Ludwig II. War breaks out with France, because Napoleon III has been run around constantly by Bismarck, left and right. He literally can't get anything he wants done thanks to Bismarck, and he's had enough. He also needs to reassert dominance in the realm of European politics if he wants to keep his job. The war, at this point, to be frank, has been a major disaster for the French. And that was not changing. Paris was besieged. The French armies in the countryside were unable to get into any sort of position to relieve the city, let alone put up a fight against the united German forces. Resistance was strong but in many ways was futile. There was no hope for the French to win this war, especially on their own. They would need outside intervention, which thanks to Bismarck's diplomatic maneuvering was just basically never going to happen. Russia was firmly on their side, Austria was still recovering from the disaster of the Austro-Prussian War, and Britain was firmly not interested in anything that was happening on the continent. But despite the fact that things had gone so badly and so fast for the French, they weren't going to give up. And so here we are, starting to get into the winter of 1870, and the king, Otto von Bismarck, and the general staff settle within the halls of Versailles, waiting for the French to give up the ghost. And while they're there, while they're waiting, Bismarck decides now is the time to go for it he starts to put in motion his plan to unite all the German states. The war had brought out calls for a national movement among most of the north, and when the French launched their incursions into southern Germany, many there started to clamor for it as well. The fears of French occupation and domination seemed to be realized in front of the southern Germans' eyes. Many of them realized the stories of their parents and grandparents about the ruthlessness of the French occupation, and they didn't want that for themselves. Napoleon had returned in the form of his nephew. Everything was about to go terrible for them. But then the Prussians and the northern Germans arrived to reinforce their armies, and they forced the French back. They were saved. To them, there was a clear correlation here. Separated, they were all at the mercy of the French, who, under their emperor, would come back and assert their domination. Even if they defeated this emperor, what's to stop them from doing it again? But, if they were united, not only could they stop the French from invading, but they could invade the French, give them a taste of their own medicine. So, a lot of the commoners in southern Germany switch sides, going from we don't want to be united to let's unite. We need to do this so the French don't invade us again. There's still a strong opposition to unity among the leadership because the southern Germans don't want, you know, they don't want to lose their jobs as the leaders of their countries. Now, to be fair, I said, you know, the common people are all for it. That's not entirely true. There were quite a few common folk who believed that Their best bet was to end the war with France, that this had all been planned by Prussia in the beginning to break down their special position within Central Europe. This was all centered around Bavaria and Württemberg. Now, Bavaria is being led by Louis II. I've mentioned that earlier. You may remember Louis as the man who built that fairy tale castle and then died in a mysterious way, uh, back from the special episode we did in the summer of 2019. If you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend it. It was a lot of fun researching. Now, Louis, honestly, he didn't want to rule. He wanted to have a lavish lifestyle. And he wanted to be the new King Louis XIV. Or at least, as you know, be the new architect that everyone else would want to emulate. He had spent most of his nation's budget on building an architect art projects, plunging him and his country into extreme debt. The Wurzenburgers, on the other hand, while their king and their queen had always been heavily anti-Prussian, and indeed had been in talks with the French about switching sides at the beginning of the war before it all went wrong for Napoleon III. So there is some opposition to this, and Bismarck needs to break this opposition before anything can be done about forming an empire. If Württemberg and Bavaria maintained their demands for independence, then no empire could form peacefully. No united German nation could form peacefully. As such, Bismarck reached out to the four southern German states in October to come to Versailles to discuss the future of Germany. Now, you would figure that the four representatives would have the advantage. They're coming all at once. They can plan their strategy ahead of time. But... Bismarck, despite having to deal with these setbacks, is able to deal with them separately. This was the exact opposite of what these representatives were supposed to do, but Bismarck was so powerful. Bismarck knew how to read a room, how to control someone, and he did so. The representatives were supposed to follow the Bavarian lead, who wanted to create a permanent alliance, but separate political entities among the German states. Bismarck, with his abilities, was able to put pressure where he needed and was able to dance around the fort to keep them from working together and in many times would actually have them working against one another. We see this happen when Württemberg actually breaks away from the coalition because Bismarck was able to get the Bavarian minister to admit that they would sell out the other nations for more political power. This is all pretty cool and all that, but by November the 11th, things looked pretty dire, though, for Bismarck. Because the Württemberg king, or prince, actually, sent orders not to negotiate without the Bavarians. Bismarck, at this point, actually truly believed that everything was lost as he watched the Württemberger negotiators leave Versailles. What was worse, still in his eyes, was that if he didn't get to the deadline in time before the Reichstag met, well then the Reichstag could actually overtake his negotiations and either accept a more disunited Germany or one with a weaker royal and executive control. As luck would have it, the Bavarians broke down on the 23rd of November, just one day before the Reichstag would meet and they signed the agreement, which forced the Württembergers to do the same. Bismarck had broken through, and the leaders of the independent German nations were not going to stop him from forming a Prussian-dominated Germany. Now, the Reichstag was not extremely happy with what was happening, especially as word reached them that Bavaria had received special concessions, such as a rather frivolous one, that the marriages of Bavarians had to have a special permit created from Bavaria, to one that the permanent presence of the Committee of Foreign Affairs always had to be a Bavarian. Now, none of the concessions that Bismarck had to give meant anything to him. I mean he honestly could care less about the Committee of Foreign Affairs, about the permits, or the money he'd have to pay in order to get this done. After all, He's the one who's helping to make this empire. He could easily neuter the committee to begin with, and in fact, he did, to the point that it was a joke among the higher-ups. The most important concession to the Bavarians was a massive bribe to Louis II, which allowed him to keep building and to get out of debt. Despite the fact that the concessions weren't really that much to Bavaria, Bismarck realized that The Reichstag could still shoot this down. And so he sent all of his friends, all of his supporters, letters. Ordering them to push it through in the Reichstag. To get it done. Make sure no one stood in their way. And for a while it was a nail-biter. But eventually they got it approved. All that remained was the final hurdle. The final hurdle. The last obstacle to a united Germany under Prussian control, was the soon-to-be emperor, who in many, many ways did not want to be the soon-to-be emperor. The big issue for Wilhelm that Bismarck needed to break first was that the crown of this empire was suffering from the same issue that it was suffering from back in 1848. It smacked of democracy, of the plebs giving it to him rather than from God and the chosen leaders of Germany. This was something that Wilhelm could never accept. In his mind, Prussia was first, and his role as its protector was his primary duty. The formation of Germany, especially at the hands of commoners, was a portrayal of that duty. Indeed, when he received a request by the Reichstag to take the crown, he realized that it was written by one of his largest supporters within the Reichstag. A man by the name of Lasker. And then, rather being excited about this, he rolled his eyes upon finding this out and said, Why then I am indeed indebted to Mr. Lasker for an imperial crown. He was not a fan of this. In order to combat this, Bismarck pushed on Louis II to write Wilhelm a letter. And indeed, actually sent him an exact copy of what he wanted. Thanks to the bribes and Louis really not caring what was happening, he took the letter and he rewrote the entire letter word for word and signed it and sent it to Wilhelm to make it clear to this erstwhile soon-to-be emperor that the crown was being offered by God's chosen leaders, not by the filthy commoners. Again, It was nearly lost when the Kaiser got upset when the Reichstag sent its letters of support and recommendation of a German empire to the point that he refused to see anyone and was prepared to turn away from everything and shut it all down, forcing Bismarck to get the other princes to sign the Bavarian king's letter to make it look 100% official. We've reached December 19th. He has... Agreed that this is going to happen. He's okay with it now because it's coming from the princes and not the people. Things are looking up and up. On December 19th, Eduard Simpson, Jewish man, is presented in front of the king. He is the president of the Reichstag and is the same man who had spoken to another Prussian king 22 years before to offer him a crown. He presents the Reichstag's wish that the king would unite the German people, and apparently was so moving that the crown prince wrote, quote, Simpson's speech was a real masterly work, delivered so perfectly that this genuine German patriotic speech moved me to tears. The king acquiesced though he made sure that it was due to the Bavarian king, who, by the way, was not here for this, rather than the letter that the Reichstag had sent. You would think this would be the end of things, but no, we still have a month to go, and there was plenty that could go wrong. And indeed, something did go wrong. The date was set for January 18th, as it was the birthday of the Prussian kingdom. This is the day that the Prussian kingdom had formed. As they were prepping for the ceremony, more and more resistance was coming from Wilhelm, as he told everyone that this was going to be, quote, the most unhappy day of my life, end quote. This came from the feeling that he couldn't shake about this crown. There was not truly something he should be taking and that he and Bismarck were constantly arguing over semantics. Wilhelm wanted to be the emperor of Germany, while Bismarck pushed for the German emperor. Now, to us, tomato, potato, tomato, potato, you know. Not a big difference there. It was everything for Wilhelm. Being emperor of Germany meant that instead of Having the crown handed to him, it was his to take. He had made himself the emperor of the Germans. But Bismarck wanted German emperor because it was a little bit more easy for the other German states to swallow. Make it a little bit easier for everyone to agree upon. This disagreement eventually led to a heated argument and a screaming match between the king and Bismarck. That was heard throughout the halls of Versailles as the days got closer, and eventually it brought Bismarck to tears, but he was finally able to get the king to back down and accept the title of German emperor the day before. I know, kind of insane. It's January 18th now. We have reached the day. Every noble and representative in Versailles has been brought into the Hall of Mirrors, where Bismarck stands in a white uniform beaming with pride this is the culmination of all of his work prussia is in charge and is controlling a united germany in the middle of the room is an altar for a worship service and the filled regiment flags are being presented to the new emperor with representatives from each regiment being there to take in the celebration and to join in in the merriment The king, soon to be emperor, stands on a dais at the end of the hall and looks extremely grumpy. He believes that everything he stood for in his life is about to be lost as soon as he's crowned emperor. Bismarck stands in front of the crowd and he reads aloud the proclamation enjoying the fruits of his labor. After Wilhelm is crowned, and the call is shouted throughout the hall, Long live the Kaiser! A sacrifice to Wilhelm, who did not want to be called an emperor to his face. Wilhelm stepped down from the dais to thank everyone for coming, and to accept their congratulations, but he does something very interesting. He goes to his generals. He accepts their congratulations. He goes to the princes, and the leaders of the realm, and accepts their Congratulations! He does not go to Bismarck. He refuses to even look him in the eye. Wilhelm was not going to forgive Bismarck this day. And that's, well, yeah, that's how the German Empire is formed. It's a long and arduous battle that, even on its day of birth, was not one of momentous joy for everyone. Now, today it is not thought of much by the world or by the German people. The Germans themselves rarely talk about the German Empire, as it's easily overshadowed by the disasters of World War I and World War II. Indeed, if you read any book on the empire, it always draws into World War I. It's just too easy to get pulled into there. The Franco-Prussian War, in many people's eyes, immediately leads to World War I although there are many, many factors that are involved. As such, the formation of the Empire this day has a sense of impending doom, but it was not always that case, and in many ways could have flourished and changed plenty of things. While this episode showed that there was much contention in the formation of the Empire, it wasn't that way for the majority of the people who now form this new nation. This day in 1871 was a huge moment in their lives. Culmination of everything they had been dreaming for for the last 70 years has happened. And in many ways, the German Empire would be the fruition of everything they had hoped for. The German Empire would give them advances in science and technology. It would have a strong, powerful position among the foreign nations. Their domestic and social policies were among the most liberal of the time. And while we look on now today as a problem for many of them, the fact that they would have a overseas empire was something to be proud of. But we're not really going to be talking about that now. That's something you can check out in Katya Hoya's new book and in the interview that we did with her last week. If you haven't Go check out that episode. But that's it for today. Thank you all for coming, listening to this. I know it was longer than usual. I know it's not what I was originally planning, but we had a lot of ground to cover just to deal with this one day in history that if you asked a random person on the street about would probably just shrug their shoulders having no idea what you're talking about. Next week, we will be back to our regular episode. We'll be back on the timeline. We will deal with what's going on in Britain. Till then, have a great week, and I'll see you next time.